This weekend is really special um, because I have a very special guest that is going to be, I want to introduce, is going to be speaking uh, today. Uh, some of you know that we um, are a part of a network that we started a number of years ago called Global Cities. And the idea behind Global Cities when we started it is we wanted to just identify what God was doing in cities of influence around the world, where God was raising up leaders who were from those cities or from that area, and to just be an encouragement, uh, pour a little fuel on the fire, uh, help with that. In some cases, there are new churches that are starting in a city of influence around the world. In other cases, there are churches that have existed that are restarting, and we're kind of coming in at that time. And it's been an amazing, amazing journey as we have built this network of relationships and network of partnerships with churches and, in many cases, young pastors uh, all around the globe who God is doing some amazing work uh, in them and through them. And one of the places that we have connected to is Leipzig, Germany. And the young pastor who is the church planter of the Leipzig Project is here today, is going to be preaching today. His name is Andre Meyer. And would you welcome Andre Meyer to the platform today? Now, I just want to brag on this guy for a second and pray for him before uh, he preaches today. Uh, Andre, uh, he and his wife were living in Hamburg, uh, Germany, and, and God began to lay on their hearts the desire to plant a church and began to, through a number of reasons, uh, kind of brought Leipzig to the forefront, part of uh, what was formerly Eastern Germany and uh, very atheistic background. You maybe will talk about that a little bit today. But a, f a few folks uh, from Hamburg uh, went with Andre and his family to Leipzig um, in 1919? 20, 20, 20, 20, 20, 20, 20, of the gospel in the city and uh, we were there uh, with a group from our church right on the front edge of right. that uh, I think it was 2019 right after kind of the small group had been formed and everything at that point was really just kind of a dream it was an amazing dream but just kind of a dream and to see what God has done over these four or five years is just absolutely incredible this this vibrant congregation that God has raised up, and God is just doing some amazing things in, uh, in Andre's life. He's an, an incredible leader, incredible speaker, just such, um, you know, such a gifted and, and humble leader, and I think that combination is just so powerful when you have someone who is gifted and humble and dependent upon God. God can just do some amazing things, and God is doing some amazing things in him and through him. And so we're so thankful to have Andre here. We're also thankful to have Jonathan here. Jonathan is a part of the team there in Leipzig. And Jonathan is actually the one who is kind of over all of the worship, production, creative arts, communication, all of that kind of stuff. 
And so, Jonathan, it's so great to have you with us today as well. Would you just stand and would you guys welcome Jonathan? And Andre, it's, uh, it's just so great to have you with us. And I just want to pray for you before uh, you break God's word before us today. God, we are so thankful for um, what you're doing in Andre's life. And we're so thankful for the Leip- Leipzig Project and this uh, flourishing congregation that you are at work in. And, uh, and the fact that we just get to be a part of that, we give you thanks for the generosity of the people of this congregation that have poured into this. We give you thanks for the relationships that have been formed. And uh, now, Lord, I just, I just want to pray for Andre as he brings the word of God to us today, that you would take his words, the, the sermon that he has put together that you have laid on his heart, and that you would apply it to each of our hearts. You know our needs. You know our fears. You know our sin. You know all of that, Lord. You know what we need. And so we pray that your spirit would just infuse this and speak to us afresh and anew through your servant. In the name of Christ, we pray. Everyone said, Amen. Amen. Would you once again welcome Andre Meyer. Happy Father's Day, Fairfax Church. Um, I'm a father of three boys Seven, four, and one, and it's a wonderful thing to be a father. I congratulate, uh, congratulate all of you fathers. Um, we are image bearers of God, and God gave us the honor to reflect this aspect of him, that he is a father, and that he loves his children. And what an honor that is. And we will hear about that a little bit today, but this will not be a typical Father's Day sermon, whatever that is. Because in Germany, we already celebrated Father's Day a couple weeks ago. It's a little bit different in Germany. Also, the way we handle Father's Day is different. Because in Germany, on Father's Day, all the men go into, they, they, they rally up in groups, and they have a little cart that they fill up, fill up stack up with beer, and then they drink it all day until they pass out in the street. <laughs> it's a very, very sad day. For Germany, And so I thought I didn't really have a, a good contribution to make on this day. So I thought instead of this, I'll bring you something that we are currently doing at Leipzig Project Church, if that's all right with you. We, I bring you something fresh. I bring you not something fabricated, something, something real, something right out of the oven, fresh out of the oven. Because that's something that we Germans are good at. Bread, baking bread. Like you guys don't know what bread is. I'm sorry about that, but, but that's the one thing that we're good at. And I hope to bring you something to break bread with you and to give you something fresh, something real that nourishes your soul and serves you well. So let's, let us read together from the book of Ruth. And I would ask you, if you will, please stand with me as we read the word of God. Ruth chapter 3. Then... Naomi, her mother-in-law, said to her, My daughter, should I not seek rest for you, that it may be well with you? Is it not Boaz, a relative, with whose young woman you were? See, he is winnowing barley tonight at the threshing floor. Wash, therefore, and anoint yourself, and put on your cloak, and go down the threshing floor to the threshing floor. But do not make yourself known to the man until he has finished eating and drinking. But when he lies down, observe the place where he lies, 
Then go and uncover his feet and lie down, and he will tell you what to do. And she replied, all that you do, all that you say, I will do. So she went down to the threshing floor and did just as her mother-in-law had commanded her. And when Boaz had eaten and drunk, and his heart was merry, he went to lie down at the end of the heap of grain. Then she came softly and uncovered his feet and lay down. At midnight, the man was startled and turned over, and behold, a woman lay at his feet. He said, Who are you? And she uncovered, and she answered, I am Ruth, your servant. Spread your wings over your servant, for you are a redeemer. And he said, May you be blessed by the Lord, my daughter. You have made this last kindness greater than the first, and that you have not gone after young men, whether poor or rich. And now, my daughter, do not fear. I will do for you all that you asked, for all my fellow townsmen know that you are a worthy woman. And now it is true that I am a redeemer, yet there is a redeemer nearer than I. Remain tonight in the morn and in the morning, if he will redeem you good, let him do it. But if he is not willing to redeem you, then as the Lord lives, I will redeem you. Lie down until the morning. So she lay at his feet until the morning, but arose before one could recognize one another. And he said, let it not be known that the woman came to the threshing floor. And she said, bring the, and he said, bring the garments you were wearing and hold it out. And she held it. And he measured out six measures of barley and put it on her. Then she went into the city. And when she came to, the, to her mother-in-law, she said, how did you fare, my daughter? And she told her all that the man had done for her, saying, these six measures of barley he gave to me. For he said to me, you must not go back empty-handed to your mother-in-law. She replied, wait. Can you say wait with me? Wait. Wait, my daughter, until you learn how the matter turns out. For the man will not rest, but will settle the matter today. Amen. You may be seated. Speaking of bread today, this story takes us to a little cow, uh, town called Bethlehem. And Bethlehem literally means house of bread. So we might say it's the bread place. So bread place is, is where we are in the story. And names of places and names of people are very, very important for the story. They drive the story, and you see now what I mean by that. So bread place is the place, and the time that we live in right now is, in this book is the times of the judges. And the book of Judges tells us that this time is a time where everyone does what they think is right in their own eyes because there is not a king in the land. And so in the house of bread, in bread place, famine hits. And that's the big irony of the story. Bread place has gone out of bread. They don't have any food there. And then there's this guy, Elimelech. And Elimelech, his name means God is king. That's a good name. God is king. But it is a reference to the book of Judges saying like, He, his name is God as king in a time where everyone does what they want and what they feel is right without asking for God. And so let's see what this guy's, guy's doing in this time. Does he act faithful? Does he act like his name sounds? Nope, he doesn't. He leaves Israel. He leaves bread place and goes somewhere else to find food. And he goes of all places he could go to Moab. And Moab, of all places, is one of the arch enemies of Israel. Moab literally, literally means, who is father? 
who is father? And that's a reference to how the country of Moab came into existence because the book of Genesis tells us that there was this guy, Lot, and he had two daughters, and he had sex with his two daughters, and from their offspring, the Moabites came. So every time the Israelites would talk about the Moabites, they would mock them and say, who was the father again? You see what's happening? So we have a place called Bread Place, and it has no bread anymore, and a guy who, who's called God is king does what he wants and doesn't ask for God's will. And he ends up in a place called who is father. And the bitter irony of the whole book is the place called who is father, in that place, all the fathers and all the potential fathers die. It's a beautiful art work that we have in front of us. It's, it's hard and it's sad, but it's also such a beautiful work of literature if you look at it and if you see it for what it is. All the fathers and potential fathers die. Elimelech dies in Moab. And then his two sons, their names literally mean weak and frail. They both also die. And so left alone is Naomi, the wife of Elimelech. She lost everything. And now she has nowhere to go, so, so she goes back home. She returns to Bethlehem. And Naomi's name means pleasant, or we could also say sweet. And in the end of chapter 1, she goes to Bethlehem and she said, don't call me sweet anymore. I want you to call me bitter. That's my new name. And this is where she's at. She's angry at God, bitter with God, and she says, I went out full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. But that's not 100% true. She's not totally alone. There is still Ruth. Ruth is the uh, wife of one of her dead sons. And Ruth decided, although she's a Moabite, although she's from different culture, from a different religion, she decides to follow her mother-in-law to Israel, become an outcast, and serve her there, and become a follower of the living God. That's Ruth. And that's also the odd thing about this book, because God is hardly even mentioned in the book of Ruth. But we cannot miss, we should not miss, that even though God is very silent in the book, he is working. He is intervening. He is doing something. But we have to look for it. This book teaches us something about the hiddenness of God. See, in the book of Judges, you see, at the same time that Ruth is written, you see superheroes, signs and wonders and miracles. And God is raising up those superheroes, and they have those superpowers. But still, everyone does what they think is right. And even the superheroes don't do what God wants. It's a crazy, bad time. And then you have the book of Ruth. No signs, no wonders, no big flashy stuff. But God is showing himself and showing us much more about his heart than we could ask for in the ordinary. See, he works through the ordinary stuff, through a bitter old woman, through a foreign, wind, foreign widow, through a farmer who will be introduced to today. 
all in a small town called Bethlehem that no one would talk about if it weren't for those people. And I don't like that that much, to be honest. I like it when God is working in my life like, bam! Maybe you can relate. I like it when, he, when I pray and he just shows up and does exactly what I want. But what if God is patient? What if God is slow? What if God likes to be waited on? What if he's found in the waiting? What if God is a God who likes to be found in the ordinary? See, if you have a relationship, you might know this. If you have a partner who is like always giving out big presents, buying you a car for Christmas or whatever, you know, that's nice. But if that's your relationship, if it's always about the next big thing, but that person is not found in the ordinary, in the changing of diapers, in doing the dishes, in taking a walk together, it gets old very, very fast. Right, ladies? Amen? Come on. I just told you something about German bakery, but in Germany, I sometimes tell, tell the church, Mama's cooking better if the kids are hungry. So you got to help me out. I'm an insecure German guy and don't speak this language very well. So please show me that you're hungry. Right? Amen. Come, ladies. Let's do this. So in Ruth, we learn something about God's heart Because he reveals his heart through ordinary people in ordinary uh, places. Because he doesn't want us to be distracted by the flashy stuff. Because he wants to show us something very intimate and personal. But we have to look for it. Did you know that you have to look for God? To search for God? Example. If I'm in a group, I have to work in a group of people, and I have a certain set of values. Let's say I want connections, I want status, I want to go up the ladder. And there's a person in the group who has no connections, who's a nobody, and who cannot help me with my values. You know what will happen in that group? I will look for everyone else in the group, but I will not see that person. That, will, that person will be totally omitted from my thinking in that group. So does that mean that person doesn't exist? No. It means I don't have the eyes to see his worth. And in Ruth, God shows us something about his ultimate motivation, his ultimate value, and that value is chesed. And chesed is a word in Hebrew for love, for kindness, for faithfulness, for mercy, all those things combined. And he reveals it here without the bling-bling and the flashy stuff because he wants us to see his worth instead of us thinking, what can I get out of him? Can I get the next sign? Can I get the next big thing out of him? No, 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 no. We have to search for his heart. We have to be conformed to his heart. So hopefully very quick, three points to see his heart in the story. Three points. Plan problem and pause plan problem and pause first the plan in verse one naomi goes to her daughter-in-law ruth and says my daughter should i not seek rest for you that it may be well with you that's very interesting because up until this point naomi is a bitter old woman and she doesn't see god's faithfulness 
She doesn't, she, she's totally bitter and angry at God, and she says, I have nothing. But here something starts to happen. She starts not to look into herself and into the, the bad circumstances that she's in, but she starts to look at someone else. You see that? Should I not seek rest for you, that it may be well with you? She starts asking about something, someone else. And what's happening here is what Jesus talks about in, in John chapter 15. He says, a new commandment I give to you, that you should love one another like I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that he would lay down his life for his friends. That's the same dynamic. Jesus teaching us, I want you to be people of love and love one another. But he doesn't just give a commandment and say, love one another. You cannot command love. What he does is he says, I will sacrifice my life for you. And that should change you. Melt your heart so you are capable, able of loving others. And that's exactly what's happening with Naomi. Over time, Ruth's faithfulness, Ruth's chesed, Ruth's, uh, Ruth's love is melting Naomi's heart. And for the first time, she starts to see another person. And I want to ask you this morning, did you know that love, chesed, the love of our Heavenly Father, has that power? Do you know that? Shall I remind you of that? I live in Leipzig, a place that is... It's totally secular. We're 40, 50 years ahead of you in terms of secularization. And it's a hostile place to the gospel. We have our office next to the office of the Antifa. You know where the Antifa is. Right? They have an office in my city. It's their White House there. So we live right next to that. And I know what it means to have people around you that don't like you. <laughs> But I have so many stories that I could tell you of people who have been melted by love. Because, here's the trick, it is very hard to hate someone who keeps on loving you. Try it. It is very hard to, to, to be bitter, to remain bitter if someone is constantly pouring out love to you. And that, it was what, what, what Naomi experiences. And I want to encourage you that this power of, of the love of God is actually a force that you can have in your life for the people around you. But there's a problem. She knows, Naomi knows, she wants to help Ruth, but the harvest time is almost over, and Ruth has found this guy, Boaz, on, the, on a field, and she works on his field, but when the harvest is over, she will not see him anymore. She will not be on his field anymore. And Boaz is a nice guy, and he prays for Ruth, and he's nice to Ruth, but he's not, you know, he's not so good in the dating game, so he doesn't make a move. He doesn't ask her out. And Naomi says, this is the last day I can do something about this, and I have to do something about this. So on the last day of the harvest, Boaz would go, and he would separate the chaff from the wheat. He would go on a, on a plateau of stone and, and would throw all the uh, barley up and the um, stuff that he doesn't want was blown away by the, by the wind and the rest stays there. And in the end of the day, he would have this huge mountain of, of uh, crops for use, but he would have to sleep there in order to protect it. You see? 
And she knows that's the only moment that he is totally alone at night and I can send Ruth there. Because at that time, a woman couldn't just go up to a guy and say, hey, let's date. Let's, it's just not how that worked in that culture. So she says, I have a plan. You go and you bathe. Good step. <laughs> also for men, actually. So, and then you take up a dress, dress nicely, perfume yourself. And then you go. And then it says in verse 4, But when he lies down, observe the place where he lies. Then go and uncover his feet and lie down, and he will tell you what to do. Naomi makes a plan, tells her exactly what to do. But if you look closely, she, he, Naomi realizes at some point, I have to let it go. I tell you, this is my plan, this is what you should do. And she's very active. She's an active planner. But then she says, and he will tell you what to do. She lets it go, and she trusts Ultimately, in God's provision in this whole thing. I don't say it's a good plan. I don't recommend you doing that. Don't get me wrong. But it is the only plan that she can come up with. And she at least does something. She's motivated by love, wants to help Ruth. But then she also knows her limitation and knows from this point on, she's on her own. But actually, she's not on her own. God will provide. And I have to wait. I have to wait and see. And that's very interesting and very important for the next point, the problem. In verse 9, Ruth had done everything that Naomi told her. And then it, then it says, he wakes up and he said, who are you? And she answered, I am Ruth, your servant. Spread your wings over your servant for you are a redeemer. So Ruth does everything that was told She goes under his blanket, sleeps at his feet, and it doesn't turn into any sexual thing, even though we might think that. But it's totally clear from the text. He immediately asks, who are you? And she immediately says, dude, it seems weird, <laughs> but I want you to marry me. This is, this is not some tricky thing, I want to marry you. He, in Hebrew, if you say, take me under your wings, it's a, it's a formula for proposal. It's saying, I want to marry you. Would you marry me? That's what she does. It's totally okay what they do, right? So, and that's interesting because she, she says, I want you to marry me, but then she mixes in a concept or two different concepts of the Old Testament. And I could go into this in detail and explain to you all the theological implications, and you would be bored, but it would be awesome for me. <laughs> Let's just trust me at this point. What she does is, she's saying, I don't just want you to marry me, but I want you to obey a certain law in the Old Testament that you don't actually have to obey, but you could obey in order to take care of my mother-in-law. The whole Redeemer thing is about Naomi. She wants, she, she says to him, you can marry me, but I, I have something attached to me, and it's my mother-in-law. If you want me, you have to also provide for her and take care of her. That's what she does. Men, how many of you would like that deal? <laughs> your mother-in-law is right next to you. Now raise your... No. Um, <laughs> You see, 
they could marry without this whole Redeemer thing and without this whole Naomi thing. That's fine. They're free to marry. But it's about the kindness, the chesed of Ruth towards Naomi. And so in verse 10, it says, And he said, Boaz, May you be blessed by the Lord, my daughter. You have made this last kindness, this last chesed, greater than the first, in that you have not gone after young men, whether poor or rich. He's talking about her first kindness. What does he mean? In the last chapter, in chapter 2, he was impressed. He, he, he found her on his field, and he was impressed because she was not working for herself there. She was working to provide for her mother-in-law. And he saw this love, this kindness, and he was impressed by it. And he started praying over her. And he started praying that God would take his wings over Ruth. And now Ruth is saying to him, man, you have been praying for me that God would be the one that takes me under his wings. If you're already praying for me, why not you becoming that person that takes me under his wings? You see? And it's funny because if you think about it, you, th there's this circle here where he is impressed by her love for Naomi. And then because she sees that he is a loving man, he is, she is motivated to approach him, has the courage to approach him because she sees how, what a loving man he is. And then he sees how she's approaching him because of her love for Naomi again. And he says, oh man, I see your love and that motivates me to love you like God should love you. And I want to be the one through whom God loves you. You see, there's this circle. It's a very interesting thing and you almost cannot see where it began. Who loved who lived first? And, and I want to tell you this. God, God has a soft heart. A very, very soft heart, a kind heart, a loving heart, merciful heart. And there's something in God. He cannot shake it. That's a secret about him. If you appeal to his love, his chesed, it does something in him. There's a note that you can ring and it resonates in his heart. If, and the funny thing is, he puts his love into you. And as, you, as soon as you start to use that love for others, he is drawn to it and wants to bless it. Our God is a God who likes to bless the very thing that he himself put into your heart. You know that? I sometimes experience that when I pray as a pastor. I pray for our city. I pray for all the non-Christians that we have as friends. I pray for my own children. And I sometimes get frustrated when nothing happens. And I, and I start, you know, you do that sometimes. I take the promises of God and I say, you said this and you said this and you said this. Act on it. And I'm trying to convince God to be nice, <laughs> to be merciful. But then something happens. While I pray, sometimes I realize, wait a minute. Why am I trying to convince God right now? Like, it was his plan in the first place. Like, he was the one who called me to do this ministry. He he's the one who wants to, to, to bring the gospel to my children. Like, that's all his idea, right? And something starts to happen in my heart where he is transforming my heart 
to become more loving. And I realized I have been praying, but I've been praying for wrong motivations. I may be wanting to have a big church or a big name. But while I pray, God is transforming my heart because he sees this little bit of love that he has put himself in my heart. And as soon as I start acting on it, he loves to blow his wind into that fire to make it big. You get what I'm saying? Is anyone understanding what I'm saying? This, this is very, very important for your life as a Christian. He wants to save your friends. He wants to save your family more than you do. If you would understand that, we would be so courageous to come to the throne of God. But the problem, as we see, is not Boaz. I talk about the problem. The problem is not that Boaz needs to be convinced. The problem is not that we need to convince God of anything. The problem is something different. In verse 12, it says, And now it is true that I am a Redeemer, yet there is a Redeemer nearer than I. Remain tonight, and in the morning, if he will redeem you, good, let him do it. But if he is not willing to redeem you, then as the Lord lives, I will redeem you. The problem is not convincing Boaz to marry her. The problem is that there is another guy. There's always another guy. <laughs> See, legally, if he wants to obey the law of the Redeemer of the Old Testament, that states that the nearest family member should do that. And he is not the nearest. There's someone who is nearer, next in line. And Boaz wants to marry Ruth. He wants to do that. But he sees that he cannot do it without breaking the law. And so he has to find out how to negotiate that. And this is very important. Boaz, he wants to marry Ruth, but he is not willing to sacrifice his integrity for it. He is not willing to trick his fellow kinsmen. He's not willing to put his own wishes above God's will. He's not a man who puts his desires above God's decrees. And that's a very, very important concept too. And I'm sure it's totally different here than in my church, but in, but in Leipzig, I often have this talk with people in my church that tell me, for, like, it can be any topic, but let's stay with this whole relationship thing. They say, I tried it God's way, but he's not giving me a partner. He's not giving me a relationship. So I take a shortcut. I can do it myself. See? And people are very active, and they plan, and they do stuff to get where they want to go, but they're not willing to obey the ways of God, and they're not willing to wait for the timing of God. Do you have that problem here, Rod, sometimes? See, trust, faith in the Bible is a, an active thing, like with Naomi. She's very active in planning. But trust and faith also knows when to wait. And the funny thing is, actually the sad thing is, people who put their wishes above God's ways shape their own character in a way that destroys exactly what they wanted to have. Think about that. God may have the same goal that you have. Maybe God has the same goal that you want to reach. 
But what if God is more interested in who you're going to be when you reach that destination than he is in the destination itself? God is more interested in how it shapes you, how the way to get there shapes you. C.S. Lewis, you may have heard of him, he said the following, To love you as I should, I must worship God as creator. When I have learned to love God better than my earthly dearest, I shall love my earthly dearest better than I do now. Insofar as I learn to love my earthly dearest as the, at, as, at the expense of God and instead of God, I shall be moving towards the state in which I shall not love my earthly dearest at all. You hear that? When first things are put first, second things are not suppressed but increased. There is an order. There is a principle that God has put into this world, and Boaz lives by it. Boaz lives by it. He knows if I got put God first, the, th the things on second and third position are actually not loved less, they're loved more. You get that? And maybe you know what I'm talking about because you've gone on the way of compromise. And you know exactly what I talk about because you have put something above God's ways. And by that, in the long term, you have destroyed that very thing. And now maybe you're as empty as Naomi. If that's the case, my friend, I want to draw your attention to the whole story of this book. This book is actually about a God who goes after Naomi. It's not about a romantic love story. It's about a God who goes after Naomi. And Naomi went on the way of compromise. She went into this other land, where is father? And she went there and lost everything and did it her own way, and it didn't work out. But the whole story is about a God who draws her near, brings her back home, and then covers her and cares for her, provides for her. I just want to tell you, if, if, if you have gone on the way of compromise, if you've missed treated this order that I've talked about. God is a loving God. God has a soft heart. And God is gracious and merciful. And he wants, to do, he wants you to come back home. And he still has a plan for your life. There's still chesed for you, right? The last point, pause. In verse 16, it says, And when she came to her mother-in-law, she said, How did you fare, my daughter? Then she told her all that the man had done for her, saying, These six measures of barley he gave to me, for he said to me, You must go and not go back empty-handed to your mother-in-law. She replied, Wait, my daughter, until you learn how the matter turns out, for the man will not rest, but will settle the matter today. It's a weird thing. They both talk about marriage. It's exciting. She says, will you marry me? Will you take care of my mother-in-law? And she's, he says, yes, I want to do it. There's this problem, but we can figure it out. I don't want to break God's laws, but I will find a way. And wait a second. Don't, before you go, here is like 60 to 90 pounds of grain. Take that on your back. That's a weird thing to do. Different culture and romantic stuff. I don't know. But actually, it has a meaning. You see, in the Hebrew, he just says, you shall not go to your mother-in-law empty. 
And it's a direct reference to what she said. Naomi said in the first chapter, when she came back to Bethlehem, she said, I went away full, but God brought me home empty. I'm totally empty. God has nothing left for me. God has nothing to pour in me. I'm just empty. And Boaz says, you shall not go empty. God is about to turn things upside down. God is merciful. And you know what? Naomi, she gets the message. She totally understands what he's saying with that gesture. She replied, wait, my daughter. She says, pause, stop, Ruth, stop. He got this. He got this. She, she totally understands. She's, she tells Ruth, Ruth, you can rest because this man, he will not rest. You can stop because he will not stop till he get this done. You can pause and wait for a minute because he will do everything he can and no obstacle can, can hold him back to get you and get me out of this. She understands totally what he's saying with it because, my friends, we know this whole thing is actually about the gospel. This is the gospel, the good news. The book of Ruth is about a God who goes after those who, have, who went on their own way and those who have never met him before and never heard of him and he is determined to redeem them and bring them back home and draw them near to him. And you see, everyone in this story, everyone here is very active in their faith. They all act. Naomi, Naomi plans. Boaz is going after his goals. He, he's, he's about to do business. Ruth is actively pursuing Boaz. She's proposing marriage. But at the same time, everyone who's active here is also able to wait. And you have to see that Naomi plans, but then leaves it in God's hands. Boaz is doing business, but then in the end, he says, you know what? I will not do it my way. I will leave it with God. I will not cross his lines. He trusts in God's ways. And Ruth, she's actively pursuing Boaz, but she is able in the end. And she's told to rest, to wait. And that's, my friend, the gospel. In the gospel, Jesus, God comes to us. And says, you don't have to climb your way up to me. You don't have to do all those things. I will do it for you. All you have to do is wait and rest. We rest as Christians in the work of another. We can rest because he has not rested. He has done his job. And no obstacle could take him back. He went and he fulfilled everything on the cross. You see... A couple um, years ago, we had a, one of one, the first retreat as a church, actually. And we went to the forest, and, and I took my niece, the daughter of Jonathan, and we went and made a fire together at a fireplace. And I asked her, hey, Ella, that's her name, um, what do we need to make a, make a fire? And so she said, oh, we need wood and a lighter. And that's it. And I said, whoa, 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 there's still one thing that we need. What do we need? And at some point she realized, she said, air. We need air. And then I asked her, I didn't ask her that way. I asked her in a child way, but you get it. 
Is air a sufficient condition for fire or a necessary condition for fire? See, if, if air would be a sufficient condition for fire, my lungs right now would burn. Because as soon as there's air, there would be fire. You get it? Thank God, air is just a necessary condition for fire. You get what I'm saying? But here's the crazy thing. As Christians, we know faith in the work of Christ, the work of another, is a sufficient condition to be saved, to be redeemed. It's not just a necessary condition. It's a sufficient condition. It's enough what he did. He did all the work. All we get to do is to wait, rest, stop, and trust in him. Can I get an amen about that? But, and this is what we're learning here. Strangely, if you do put your trust in him, this makes you not passive, but active. It activates something in you. This kind of love of God, it activates something in you. Naomi has changed from bitter and self-focused to selfless. Ruth gets courage from it. Boaz is motivated by it. it. If you understand the gospel, you don't have to do anything, but you will. Murdoch MacDonald, he was a Scottish chaplain in the U.S. Army in World War II. It's a true story. And he was caught and put in a concentration camp. And he was allowed... There was an American side of the fence in this concentration camp and a British side. He was allowed, because there was a chaplain, once a day to go to the fence and meet the chaplain of the British army. And they could talk for a couple minutes. And they realized that they both spoke Gaelic. And the guards, the German guards, couldn't understand what they were talking about. And one day, Murdoch MacDonald tells the story that they, the Americans, had somehow managed to, to build a radio And they have heard following news. Germans have surrendered. The war is over. And you know what? Murdoch McDonald tells the story of what happened that day when he went to the fence. I took that news, he says, to the fence that day and I gave it to my friend. And that day I stood there at the fence with my friend while my friend went into the British barracks. I waited for what I knew would happen. There was a thunderous roar of celebration from the British barracks. And the most amazing thing happened. For three days, prisoners of war walked around the camp singing and shouting. We were gloriously happy. We didn't complain about the food. We waved at the dogs and the guards. No god knew what was happening. Nobody could explain it. And on the morning of the fourth day, we walked out of the prison as freed men. But then he says a very important sentence. He said, but... We were set free four days before that by the news that the war is over. We didn't even have to wait for the final redemption, right? The liberation. They, they were liberated just by the news of it. And if we get that into our system, the gospel is God has done everything. The work, the work is done. The heavy lifting has been done. But we still have to wait for the completion, fulfillment of it. He still has to come back, right? And we live in this waiting time in the middle. And if you realize what the news are, how good the news are, it would change us dramatically. Not by force, not by you have to do this and you have to do that and you have to obey, 
but because love just melts hearts and this news is just too good to leave you like you are. We have to be people who sing and shout and are different, right? We have the best news in the world. Last little thought, if you would put the picture up. I've experienced this so many times since, I've, since we've planted Leipzig Project Church, and it's the biggest honor and the greatest thing to, to be a pastor, actually. This is Paula. Say hi, Paula. She's not here. Why are you saying hello? Um, she came to my office, and she said, Pastor, and she, she has, she's come, she, she came from a background that was very, it was not good. Kid of the wetlock, no job, not, not a good, not a good background. But she came to know Christ through our church. And she came and said, said to me, Pastor, I don't want to be baptized. And I looked at her like, so this is why we're meeting? You want to tell me that you don't want to be baptized? Like, what's, what's, what a weird way to start a conversation. And, and, she's, and I asked her why. And she said, I believe that it's true what you say. I believe in the good news, but I can't leave my old life behind. And so I explained the gospel to her. And I, I said to her, you know what? You cannot be good enough to earn a position where you can be baptized. Bapti baptism is the opposite. Baptism is trusting, relying on what another did. That's the sign. We believe in Christ's death and resurrection. It's not, you cannot be good enough to earn it. And she said, yeah, I know that. I understand that. But I would have to leave my old life behind, right? And then I understood what she was saying. And I said, I have to be honest with you. You're right. If you go in that water, it says that something is activated in you. And you say, my old life dies there and I want to live and follow him. Something happens there. Your old life will be left in that water. And something weird happened. Her eyes lit up. I still see it in my, in my mind. Her eyes lit up. And she said this, those words that no one ever said to her or put in her mouth. She said, wait a minute. I want to be baptized. Christ is my Savior. He died for me. It's only right that he's also my King. And I follow him. I don't know if you get what happened there, but that was chesed, the love of God, the news of the gospel, activating something in that woman. And it's such a beautiful story. If you would get to know her, like she has been following Christ's way since that day so consistently. Do you have this love? Do you know this love? What kind of love is this that our Father in heaven has? I don't know. But I got it. And I ask you, do you got it? Amen. Let's pray together. Father, I thank you for your chesed, for your love, for your kindness, for your goodness in our life. Oh, if we just could see your heart, our lives would looks so different and we confess that we, we, we would be much more bold and confident and courageous and much more loving, much more freely with our time and our gifts and our efforts towards others. But we cannot make it on our own. We cannot change ourselves. God, we confess that. 
We need your love to fill our hearts. And I ask for that right now, that your Holy Spirit would come down into our hearts and melt our selfishness away and put your chesed love into our hearts this morning. And I pray that in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen.